You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good day, podcast listeners. Randy Bolander here on the Third Cup of Coffee, and welcome to episode 49 of the podcast. Now, those of you who are ardent followers realize that episode 49 was supposed to have been produced last week. I had gone 48 weeks straight with a podcast and was shooting for 52 in a year, because that's how it works, but it didn't work. And uh, episode 49 last week was thwarted, shall we say. It was thwarted by a number of issues. It was thwarted by Legos. It was thwarted by, uh, you know, 11 people in one home and no one going anywhere. It was thwarted by the opportunity for Christmas eating. There was a lot going on last week. It was Christmas, you know. And so it just didn't come together. And uh, my apologies, but here we are, December 30th, the week that nothing happens in between Christmas and New Year, and we're going to get a podcast out. I have determined, you know, do you make New Year's resolutions? I normally don't. I normally just kind of go on with my life. But this is what I have determined after 2020. This is my pledge to you, the listener, and to my family as well. I hope every day to get up and get dressed as if I might go somewhere. I probably won't. But I want to be ready just in case the opportunity comes. Because I have noticed over the past couple of months, as we've just not been getting out that much at all, that um, let's just say uh, the emphasis on personal appearance has dropped considerably. And so today, it's no, we're going to get up, we're going to get dressed as if someone would show up at the door and we would not hide. We are not going to wear our pajama pants all day. We're going to find shoes, actually, eventually. I still have my slippers on, but I'll find shoes at some point today. What a year it has been, huh? What a crazy year for all of us, for you, for us. And because Kelsey and I are forerunners, we started early. Our crazy started earlier than many people did. Um... I was sitting at the airport in Denver years ago. I'll never forget this because this picture has stuck in my mind. I'm sitting there drinking coffee, waiting for my flight. And the moving sidewalk is right out in front of me. And you know, you have all the characters on the moving sidewalk. You have the people who are so exhausted, they get on the moving sidewalk and they just stand because they cannot bear to pull their carry on one more foot under their own power. So they just stand and go for the ride. That's fine. Totally allowed. Then you have... Uh, the family of five that goes at radically different paces. And by the time they get to the end of the sidewalk, they're spread out over 100 feet, and they still wait for the slowest person. And then you have that business guy who's just afraid he's going to miss the flight. And so he's on the moving sidewalk, and he's running. And And this is the guy who comes by as I'm sitting there drinking my coffee. I watch the businessman with a briefcase, old school briefcase, not a backpack, old school briefcase running down the moving sidewalk. And when he gets to the end of the sidewalk, you know that little stutter step you do? He failed miserably. Like, he went from the end of the sidewalk, as if he did not see it coming, full-on dive, spread eagle, lands on the ground, suitcase busts open, papers go flying. I felt so bad for the guy. I felt so bad for him. Uh, That was us about a year ago. Um, We had... Just left a ministry role unexpectedly. How's that for diplomacy? Okay. And I felt like I had been running and got to the end of the sidewalk and just went sailing. Didn't see it coming. Let me simplify some things for a couple of you. Okay. Because you may be wondering, it's what people wonder when pastors leave. No marital strife, no financial impropriety, no heresy. None of the, 
None of the things that people think pastors leave suddenly for. Um, how shall I say? There were strong differences of opinion and interpretation of events. We'll call it that. In the words of Forrest Gump, that's all I have to say about that. So that had happened, and we didn't see it coming. And we were kind of mulling around in a fog, in the shock, in the, in the, the fog of war, as they say. And then COVID hit. You know, it was just a couple months later, boom, COVID hit. Uh, I had a good friend in ministry who called me as COVID was hitting, and he said, how is your family? You were reeling from one development you didn't see coming, and, and now COVID has hit. And I, I have to confess, I, I laughed because I said, well, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we felt like we were kind of in crisis, and now the whole world's in crisis, and it feels like the tables are leveled again. I feel like, you know, I feel normal now that everything else is falling apart. It has been quite a year, and I just want to say that I am grateful to my family for uh, their consistency in love towards me on days when um, I have not been terribly lovable at times. Uh, I'm really grateful for friends, especially pastor friends. I have talked more hours to pastor friends on the phone in the last year than I had in the previous 30. I'm, I'm not kidding. I had, had a couple of guys who really, really connect well with me. I'm super grateful for them. But of course, most of all, I'm grateful to the Lord who has been so kind through all of this, through COVID, through all what happened uh, before that. I was reading this morning Psalm 31, and uh, boy, it struck me. This is my psalm. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. This last line, into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. That phrase that we heard Jesus say as he hung on the cross, into your hands I commit my spirit. It is not a prayer of defeat. It is not, I'm laying down everything and, and this is the end and I'm giving up the ghost. It's not, it's not that. It is saying, I am putting all of my chips in with you, God. I'm going to give you everything I have, which is not much, but I'm going to trust you to make something of it. And that encapsulates the year for me really well. Into your hand, I commit my spirit, and that's how I want to live the year to come. Enough reflection. Some of you came here for teaching and think I'm just going to ramble for another hour. I won't, I promise. Teaching on this podcast is from last Sunday at the bridge where I dove into a series called Egypt, uh, the people of God in a foreign land. And it explores the interesting relationship that God's people have had with Egypt over the years. I think it speaks well to where we are as a nation and as believers and um, as individuals. Here it is, Egypt part one. In this uh, kind of odd season in between holidays and all that, um, one of the blessings of it 
is I've been able to spend a lot of time with our kids, uh, more so than normal. They're not off running off to school. Lots of time with family. And some of the best times I've had with family over the last year or two has been telling stories at night. Now, we haven't done it since we moved to this new house, but in the old house, we had a lot of kids in one bedroom. And so I would often uh, tell stories to kind of put everybody to sleep. I found that I have a knack for telling stories that I have never heard and just kind of making them up as I go along. And uh, for the last couple of years, I've told these epic tales about Rosie, the six-toed girl, and they get more and more intricate as they go. And I have to be careful. Had I known how long I would be telling these stories, I wouldn't have gotten nearly as detailed because the kids remember all of the details and like street names and all kinds of things that I've, I've lost track with. But as I tell the stories, uh, they get slower and quieter and more hushed until I think everybody in the room is asleep. It's a little like preaching, okay? I tell you, it'll take everybody in the room is asleep, and then I quietly kind of back out the door. And normally, as I pull the doorknob shut, I'll hear one, at least one voice go, and then what? Like they want to know, like they're not asleep yet. And then what? They want to know what happens next in the story. So we've spent the last couple of weeks talking about the Christmas story, and here is where we ask, and then what? Because the then what leads us, leads us to Egypt. And I want to start this into this year, kind of bridge 2020, 2021, with the complicated relationship that the people of God have with Egypt. Now stick with me, because today in particular, I'm going to walk the beam between two different stories involving people of the same name going to the same place, but they're different people. We're going to talk about Joseph, the father of Jesus. We're also going to talk about the Old Testament Joseph, the son of Isaac. So I will do my best to make it clear in between the two of who I'm talking about. I think you'll be able to, to track with me as we go. We're going to talk about great success and great pain and twists and turns and surprises and disappointments, often all in one chapter. And if you think that sounds like your life in the last year, you have figured it out because we are also going to be talking about us. Now, obviously, if Egypt is a real place and the events described in the Bible are real events. Jesus, earthly father, really did take the family to Egypt. Joseph, the son of Isaac, really did go to Egypt. Those are factual events. What is also factual is that there are seasons in which the people of God recognize that we live in a foreign land, and those seasons are marked with struggle, and we are those people. So even though we know that we serve Jesus and we're disciples of him, most of our lives are spent in situations that relate more to the Hebrews of Egypt than they do how the disciples lived. If we look at the Mount of Transfiguration, we read of the disciples seeing the glory of God, and we wonder, wow, what must that have been like? But when we read of the Egyptians telling the Hebrews, make more bricks with less straw, we totally get that. Like, that makes sense to us. That feels like our life sometimes, trying to produce more with less in a foreign land. That's not just familiar. It's to be anticipated. Jesus prayed to his father, because he knew he was calling you onto a course that was entirely counter to the world that you would live in. He expected you to be out of place in your setting. He expected that you would recognize in some manner or fashion, you live in Egypt. Now, as we've been coming into uh, 2021 and nearing the end of the year, we've all heard it and we've probably all said it. Boy, I cannot wait for this year to be over. As if, with the turning of a calendar year, circumstances would instantly change. Because surely the chaos of 2021 or 2020 would not dare to encroach into 2021. 
In reality, the issues of 2020 are not going away. In fact, with the turn of the calendar, they may even become more compounded. It's why more important than ever, we lean into the words of Jesus, who prayed in John 17, 16 to 19, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your truth is word. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. He said, I'm sending them into a place, but it's not a place where it's really their home. I'm sending them into 2021, but this is not their home. This is not where they make their residence. And it wasn't just Jesus who recognized that we don't belong here. Paul was a Roman citizen who was not above pulling out his Roman citizenship card when he was in trouble with the courts. He went so far as even to admit that a citizen of the Roman regime who professes Jesus as Savior becomes an alien in the world that he was born in. Philippians 3.2, Paul writes, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Which begs the question, if our citizenship is in heaven, then why are we paying taxes in Johnson County? If our citizenship is in another place, why are we weighed down with the concerns of Egypt where we seem to live? If I belong in another realm, how come my difficulties seem really concrete here? And how am I supposed to be totally loyal to this unseen kingdom and be responsible in the world that I live? How do I live in Egypt with a heart for the land that God promised us? I think it is the preeminent question of our time for followers of Jesus. How do we live here knowing we belong there? And as we study these passages, I want you to put yourselves in these story. You may have never physically lived in Egypt. You may never have ever visited Egypt with current travel restrictions. Maybe nobody ever visits Egypt again. All I know is that we got to recognize that we live in a place that can be harsh and demanding and foreign, and it leaves us longing for life in another place because we all kind of live in Egypt right now. Thanks to 2020, almost everything seems foreign, unpredictable. We didn't imagine we'd find ourselves here and not knowing how long we'll be in this place. If you add a pyramid, any one of us could be King Tut. It's been that out of the ordinary for us this year. I like to come to an end of the year and ask myself, you know, what have we learned? The blessing of 2020 could lie in the fact that we have learned that we want more out of life than three hots in a cot. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase. It used to be the standard in homeless care. If you gave someone three hot meals and a cot, they should be able to figure out life from there. And even those who do homeless ministry have realized that people need more than three hots in a cot to be human. Most of us have had our basic needs cared for this year. It may have been hard, but most of us have slept indoors every night. Most of us have had meals when we needed meals. But we still found ourselves lacking, lacking for relationship, lacking for connection, and lacking for a depth that we thought we had before the wheels fell off. If there's been a blessing to all this, it could be that we came into agreement with the writer of Ecclesiastes, who wrote in Ecclesiastes 5.10, that he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. We've realized that, okay, we've, we've had enough finances to carry us, but it's not been enough. 2020 has revealed our shallowness and accentuated our need for depth. That even when our physical needs are cared for, relationships matter, and ultimately our connection to God is the only way to survive in times like this in Egypt. So we're going to introduce this idea of God's people 
and their relationship to Egypt by picking up the Christmas story once all of the shepherds have gone home. After weeks of focusing on the Christmas story, we want to ask, what then? Just like my kids do at the end of the story. Okay, what then of the Christmas story? If I asked you to talk about Joseph, uh, most of you would go, yes, I know Joseph, son of the, or the, the father of Jesus. And you would think I've got a pretty good handle on him. And the truth is, we don't know much. We really don't know much about Joseph. We know he's a man of character because of how he treats Mary. We assume that he dies before the crucifixion and perhaps even before Jesus's public ministry because he's never mentioned, even though Mary's mentioned over and over again. We know that he works with his hands. But of all that we know about Joseph beyond his character, probably the thing we know the most clearly is that he is a man of dreams. He dreams the dreams of God. At least four times, Joseph has guiding dreams that steer him in a dramatic way. You and I would not be here in conversation if Joseph did not hear from God in dreams and do those dreams. First dream in Matthew chapter 1 He's told not to be afraid to take Mary as his wife. And of course, we talked about that in recent weeks. He, he does the dream. He follows it out. The second dream is the one we're talking about today in Matthew 2, where he is warned to leave Bethlehem and go to Egypt. Now, while he's in Egypt, he has a third dream where he's told to go back to Israel. And then he has the fourth dream telling him specifically what route to take. Joseph, this humble, obedient, blue-collar worker who fades into history, and we don't even know where he's buried or how he died, was a dreamer who changed the world by doing the dreams. He hears from God, and he acts it out. Do you know what you call dreams given to people from God who do not act on those dreams? We call those dreams wasted. Joseph did not waste his invitations from the Lord, and it guided the childhood of Jesus and the history of man. So here we are in Matthew chapter 2. I'm going to read kind of an extended passage here, and we'll also read one in Genesis in a little bit uh, to understand the context of what they're doing in Egypt and what it must have been like. Matthew 2, 1 through 14 starts, now after Jesus was born. Now, just pause for a second. This is where your nativity sets that show the wise men high-fiving all of the shepherds is ruled inadmissible in court because it's not factual. Okay, that, that it didn't happen that way. The wise men and, and the shepherds did not all gather at the same time. This happened later. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came from Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembled all of the chief priests and the scribes of the people. He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born, and they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, from whom you shall become a ruler who will shepherd all my people of Israel. So the religious leaders quote the Old Testament and say he was supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star appeared. And he said to them, he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. This is a lie. Okay, but don't be surprised when evil people act in evil ways. He has no intention of coming to worship Jesus. He wants to know the time of when the star appeared because he's trying to figure out how many children he's going to have to murder to execute this one who they believe to be Messiah. 
After listening to the king, verse 9, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. They, opening their treasures, offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, Joseph's not the only dreamer in this story, they departed to their own country by another way. And when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. Now, just a side note here, just a, uh, as I'm reading through this, I'm thinking this morning, because there are some who feel that protect one's, to one, protect oneself is an exhibit of a lack of faith. Particularly in this season of COVID and of being careful, there's this idea that if, well, if, you, if you're protecting yourself and you're not trusting the Lord. I have seen national leaders in the church almost mocking safety precautions for COVID as if to indicate that if someone wears a mask, they're operating in fear rather than faith. Think about this. The legal father of the son of God took physical precautions. Why did Joseph not tell everybody, hey, I've got faith in the son of God. I actually have the son of God with me. He's in a car seat. Like what could possibly happen? No weapon formed against me shall stand. I mean, he was familiar with that that scripture. That was Old Testament. If that doesn't work when you have the sweet baby Jesus in a Bjorn backpack, I don't know how it ever works. But Joseph had a dream in which he was told to caution himself. And he knew that we lived in a spiritual world and a physical world at the same time. Your spiritual condition as a child of God does not exempt you from the physical world. It doesn't exempt you from the rule, rule, rules of physics or the principles of science or the, the courts of law. There are miracles and we welcome them, but we also use caution. Those two things are not contradictory. We live in a world where safety and concern, particularly around COVID has been used as a political and a spiritual pawn. And I want to just tell you, I have been pained at the level of disdain I have seen among believers who look at this pandemic in different ways. The church has struggled with how to respond to physical danger. Joseph chose safety and to err on the side of safety for his family and to go to Egypt. Now, granted, it was given to him through a dream, but he chose to err on the side of caution. And I respect how people respond in this season. Never look down on someone who is being more careful than you are through this pandemic. You don't know what they've heard from the Lord, and you're not responsible for their family. Likewise, if someone feels comfortable in taking risks that you don't feel comfortable with, as long as they're not endangering you, perhaps the most Christ-like thing would be to refrain from lecturing them. Joseph, Mary, and Jesus evacuated for safety. And just like almost everything that happens to us, there was more to why they did it. There are complicated reasons. Egypt was a part of Jesus's destiny. God is a complex thinker. He regularly does things for multiple, multiple uh, reasons. When, when things happen in people's life and they say, I'm just looking for the reason God would do this, I always say, hold off. You know, five years from down, you'll, you'll see five reasons that he did it. There, the other reason we find is in Matthew. Uh, chapter 2, 15 continues, and they remained there, or they remained in Egypt, 
until the death of Herod, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. Here Matthew is quoting Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, 750 years earlier, Hosea the prophet said, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, just to prove that theologians will argue about just about anything, there's actually controversy about whether or not Matthew meant this as a fulfillment to the prophecy in Hosea. Now, to be fair, when Hosea said this in context, he was telling the story of Moses leading the children of Israel to freedom, but Matthew chose to pull that line out and point to Jesus. It could be that the prophet Hosea didn't even understand he was talking about the, uh, the Messiah at that time. But it turns out now, as I'm reading different theologians, they feel this is controversial. And there are modern scholars that will actually say, well, Matthew was wrong. Now, those that say this are, are generally uh, Jewish scholars who struggle with finding Jesus anywhere in the Old Testament. Or there are Reformed scholars who find great value in making things complicated. But they insist that Matthew was just making a reference to Hosea, kind of like putting a preacher's bow on the story. I have a tendency to believe Matthew. Like, I think if it got through the vetting of the Holy Spirit that Matthew was actually right. When he said this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son, I believe he meant Jesus. Now, I also believe he meant the descendants of Joseph. And to a lesser extent, I think it also references us. God was thinking about us when he called Joseph and his descendants and Joseph and his son Jesus out of Egypt. He's been thinking about us since the beginning of time. The whole story of redemption is about Jesus, but it's on our behalf. If you find yourself in Egypt, he is thinking about the day when he calls you out. Now, we don't know a lot about the significant details of Jesus's life in Egypt. What little we think about him is based largely on assumptions. We can safely assume that even though the Magi didn't visit the manger scene, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus were still in Bethlehem, and Jesus was very young. We believe this because the order was placed to kill all of the baby boys under the age of two. So was he six months? Was he 18 months? We don't really know, but he was young. Considering the population of Bethlehem and estimating the rates of childbirth, and the, it's logical to estimate that they probably executed 20 to 25 baby boys in this season, believing that the Messiah must have been among them. But Jesus, of course, has gone to Egypt with his family. We don't even know how long he was in Egypt. Some scholars say a year. Some say as many as seven. Uh, logic would say he's probably somewhere in the middle, two or three years until he returns. We do know that he went to Egypt and he came out. And that's what happens to God's people. They go to Egypt and they leave at some point. Again, Jesus was not the first of his lineage to spend a season in Egypt. Centuries earlier, for 400 years, his ancestors served as slaves in Egypt. And while Jesus and his family were not slaves, one's got to wonder if there's any crossover in, or in God's mind when the people of God went to Egypt and then were led out, and then the Son of God goes to Egypt and he is brought out. Like I said, we don't know specifics about his, his time there, other than what history tells us. We do know that at this time in history, there's a small Jewish community in Egypt. They may have been a remnant, perhaps, of a few 
who did not leave during the Exodus, but more likely there were people who moved back to Egypt over the centuries once the animosity towards Hebrews had died down a bit. But Jesus' activity as a child there is never really described. We don't know what it was like. It is not described in scripture, and it's barely referenced in academic works. When academics and scripture don't describe things, one of the purposes of art is to give expression to the unknown. When there's gaps in history, sometimes artists help us imagine what life might have been like in those series. For instance, no one was alive or present at creation. One could argue that Adam was, but he wasn't there at the immediate moment. Yet we look to Michelangelo's painting of the creation of man with God reaching out to touch Adam's hand. And uh, while we suspect it didn't happen exactly that way, it gives us a picture of how it might have happened. And we don't have a, a written record of Jesus's time in Egypt either, but we do have art from a more modern source and a different form than Michelangelo in painting. No artist in modern time has been better at painting and make, or painting with words and making us wonder than a man named Rich Mullins. Rich Mullins passed away in 1997, and when he did, he was working on an album called The Jesus Record that was to tell the story of Jesus's life. Uh, Rich is the only person I would have known that would have written a song about Jesus's life in Egypt, which we know nothing about. But the, the song starts out with this great refrain, refrain that makes you think. The lyrics say, Joseph took his wife and her child and went to Africa to escape the rage of the deadly king. There along the banks of the Nile, Jesus listened to the song the captive children used to sing. They were singing, my deliverer is coming. My deliverer is standing by. Well, who are these captive children? Jesus is not the first of his family to live in Egypt. The song is referencing the children of the Hebrew slaves from so many centuries before, and that they may very well have sang a song of a deliverer that had been passed down through the generations that perhaps even Jesus heard as a child, realizing the song was about him. Now, by no coincidence, I found myself reading the story of Joseph of the Old Testament this week. And in my early morning Bible reading, I found myself in tears in part because of the goodness of God to Joseph and his life, but also in part because of how the story develops. And for all the goodness of God and Joseph's life, I see a trainload of pain coming for his descendants, and it's real. It is hard to celebrate Joseph's life when you see what is coming down the track. He's living in Genesis, but we all know the story further, that there's 400 years of slavery to follow his life of triumph. Living in Egypt things can take a very sharp turn very quickly. When a deliverer is coming, you've got to be ready to wait for him and to endure his arrival. That may involve a lot of twists and turns. Even the early church cried Maranatha, or Lord, come quickly. 2,000 years later, we cry out the same thing. Meanwhile, we live in Egypt, just as Joseph did. Hollywood has never written a rags-to-riches-to-rags-to-riches story better than the life of Joseph of the Old Testament. One of his two father's favorite sons, he was, a, he was a dreamer, just like his namesake in the New Testament. Joseph's cho father chose to go, or Jesus' father chose to go to Egypt, but this Joseph of Genesis didn't go to Egypt willingly. He was dragged, kicking and screaming. As a young boy, he shared his dreams a little too freely, and 
He was beaten half to death by his 10 half brothers and then thrown in a cistern until he was sold to human traffickers who hauled him away to Egypt where he leads this epic life, ascending to some level of authority and then being falsely accused by Potiphar, the king's wife. In Genesis 39, read a short passage here, chapter 7 to 15, about life in Egypt. Now, at this point, Joseph has ascended to a role of prominence in Potiphar, the king of Egypt's household. And it says in that chapter, 37 verse, uh, 39, verse 7 to 15, after a time, his master's wife laid her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in his house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house were there in the house. And she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and he fled out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called them to call to the men of her household and said, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and he fled and he got out of the house. So here he is, he's living in Egypt and he's falsely accused of the very thing he tried to avoid, okay? Over and over, she comes to him and she tries to woo him and he rejects her. And even though he rejects her, he ends up accused of the very thing that he tried not to be guilty of. You might be reading this and go, there's no justice in Egypt. There's just, how can that happen? You'd be accused of something that you intentionally tried not to do. You're right, there is no justice in Egypt for a child of God. It's not as if Joseph was involved in a mutually agreed upon tryst and he got caught and she changed her story later. No, he worked hard to avoid it and she pursued him. When he refused to cooperate, he's accused of the thing that he was innocent of. One peculiarity about those living in Egypt is your voice doesn't really matter. Joseph had never lied to Potiphar. He'd never stolen. He'd never touched anything that wasn't his. He had played by the rules. But when he wouldn't betray his master to please his master's wife, none of those accomplishments mattered. He immediately was reminded that he was still a slave boy in a foreign land. In chapter 39, verses 19 and 20, as soon as the master heard the words that the wife had spoken to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him in prison. Now, up until now, this has been a really pretty great story. Joseph had influence and he had ease. Things were so good in Egypt, he was beginning to actually be grateful. He had to go through what he had to go through to get where he got, and suddenly not. Remember, no matter how things are going, you're never really at home in Egypt. If 2020 has done us any favors, it has shown us that this world is not our home. It's been said by Christians around the world that it is not persecution that is the greatest threat to American Christianity. It's actually success and comfort. Because in our success and our comfort, we have kind of lost the idea that we really do live in a foreign land. 
like Joseph, we can early in his life, we can find finances and houses and credibility on this earth. And there's nothing wrong with it. But when push comes to shove, our voice in Egypt is not the same as our voice before heaven. Our voice doesn't carry much weight on earth, but it, where it matters and where it's heard before the throne of God, it's heard and it matters. The world has always been hostile to citizens of another place. Jesus was aware of this even when he was walking the physical hills of Judea and Samaria. In Matthew 18, Jesus told him, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. And that was true. And a few chapters later, they crucified him. Don't be surprised when the world is unfair or cruel to you. For all of the favor that Joseph of the Old Testament found, he was still a foreigner. And a simple accusation landed him in prison. It would have been much better for him back in his homeland. Likewise, for all of the safety that Jesus' family found in that season in Egypt, their heart yearned for a home to go back to. And they went back there as soon as the Lord called them out. We all, to some extent, live in Egypt, and some of us are feeling it in a real way right now. We're discontent, and we're at odds, and things don't seem fair. They don't seem right for us, and we yearn for the day when we are brought out, and our hearts sing the song of the exiled children. Our deliverer is coming. The year that we have lived is not the year that we asked for. Even if we did things right, we still manage to find ourselves quarantined or struggling or maybe even sick. And the discontent you feel is not because you are weak and it's not because you are wrong. It points to the fact that you realize you reside in one place, but you belong in another. Jesus went to Egypt. Joseph went to Egypt. In some respects in 2020, we came to terms with the fact that we live in Egypt in a land at odd with our values and with the knowledge that we were here for a while, but we don't belong here ultimately. Next week, I wanna talk about how the people of God survived in Egypt for 400 years. We're looking at 2020 turning the calendar. They lived in Egypt for 400 years. We're not gonna live like this forever, but we are coming out and we're going to do it when God calls us out. We've got to perhaps learn to live in this tension for a while. So even as next week, we talk about how do we live here? How did the people of uh, the children of Israel do it for 400 years and maintain their identity and be able to hear God and come out? And what was coming out like? What did it look like to be called out of Egypt? The question before us this week is, are we too comfortable and are our hearts set on living in our land that we're in right now that we don't even recognize that there is another place that we call home? I want to lead in prayer, but I want to encourage some of you to join us and, um, and just lead the group and lift up our hearts before the Lord that we would come to terms with the fact that this is not our home. And uh, maybe we have hooked too much hope on things going back to normal, as if normal wasn't Egypt in itself. So I'll, I'll go ahead and lead out in prayer. Just encourage any of you that uh, feel led to do the same. Father, we love you. You have been good to us in this year. And as we gather at the end of 2020, we look back and we thank you for the lessons learned. 
we thank you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you, Lord, for those who have been sick and are now well. We thank you for protecting so many of us. We thank you for the time that has been forced into our hands that we have turned to you and spent time in your word and time with one another. And we thank you we're different people than we were a year ago. And Lord, for those of us that, even with my own heart, that are looking forward to 2021 and saying, oh, can things be different? Help us come to terms with the fact that uh, things will never be right until we're called out of Egypt. And I ask that you would hook that in our hearts, that like the people of the Old Testament, we would always look for that deliverer. We would sing that song, our deliverer is coming. We look forward and we say, Maranatha, for the day you call us out of this world that has never really been our home, God. Father, would you call us out? In Jesus' name. Hey, thanks for listening to the podcast. Hope you have a great week and I hope you can connect with us at The Bridge. Go to thebridgekc.church. We'd love to have you. Have a great day.